Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Kate. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Uh, I believe you and I met at the Ottawa AFP conference a couple of weeks ago, exchanged some messages shortly thereafter. That was a virtual event. Um, I really regret the fact that I couldn't get up to Ottawa. I was looking forward to that. I was Playing on bringing Eric and the kids, uh, but um, I'm sure they'll uh, perhaps they'll invite me back if I made enough uh, enough positive impressions. <laughs> um, and uh, I might just even if I didn't, I'll just uh, perhaps I'll just uh, pony up the cash to uh, put all put everybody in the minivan and, and we'll head up there next year. But um, all that said, Kate, let's uh, before we dive into our topic of conversation, how about we ask you to introduce yourself this morning? 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's a pleasure. I was so happy that you reached out and I'm able to do this. You're definitely going to be invited back to Ottawa, I think. Uh, <laughs> you have a, first of all, you have a great voice. This is a great podcast voice. <laughs> <Yeah>. And uh, <laughs> I just remember you were one of the, I think you were the first speaker that I heard. And I was like, I like this guy. He has a good perspective. So <laughs> okay. Pretty, well, thank you. Pre- <laughs> yeah. Pretty happy to be here. But yeah, my name's Kate. I'm a Canadian. I'm from Ottawa, Ontario, which is the capital. A lot of people think it's Toronto, but it is Ottawa. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and yeah, I uh, I work in fundraising. I'm a development officer for the University of Ottawa, but I've done all kinds of different fundraising, everything you could think of from door knocking to call centers to standing on the corner where no one wants to talk to you because you're trying to talk to them about the environment or something. Yeah. Um, so I've really done it all, and uh, I'm just excited to be here and share some experiences, some insights, and uh and yeah, I'm just. Uh, so, it's nice to connect with people. Kate, how long have you been in the field? So, how long have you been in the work? I would say about five years. Five years, now. yeah. Okay, so yeah. So I don't know if you picked up a copy of my. We gave we gave away some copies of my book at the at the event. Um, and uh, and and one of the things that a lot of people who uh, I talked to who were say five to ten years into their career. I um, I explained to them that that first book that I wrote, I was writing to the person who was sort of on the other side of the, I've showed up at conferences and attended all the one-on-one sessions I can possibly, you know, I've got my head wrapped around galas and golf tournaments. I know how to, you know, I know all the technical expertise you can perhaps you know, shove down my throat. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I've even got perhaps some credentialing or something, right? It's sort of that person who's sort of right where you're at, where you're beyond the five year mark and you're starting to think more carefully and critically about what it is you're doing. And that yeah. kind of like what we were talking about before we hit the record button, that's the person I want to be talking to. So I don't want to be talking to the experts. The experts kind of <laughs> w- sort of wear on us all a little bit. They've, they've always got the answers. Um, and I don't want to necessarily, I had I, n- nothing against the people who are say 18 months in, they've got a degree of optimism that perhaps sort of wears <laughs> on you. Um, but the person who's five or six, in, six years in like yourself sort of has a realism that sort of gets this, has a sense of how this really works. Does that make sense to you? Is that where you're oh, at? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think it makes sense. And yeah, not to say that the experts don't know what they're talking about, but sometimes they know too much (laughs) because fundraising, people change all the time. You know, it's not a set rule book on how to fundraise, on how to speak to people that want to be philanthropists, right? Like it's going to change. And I've done so many different fields of it that I think I have a pretty good, even though I haven't been doing it, you know, for 10, 20 years, I've seen like every single kind of person (laughs) that you can kind of see. I fundraised with people who didn't have a lot of money with people that have a lot of money. So it's really, it changes all the time. So I don't even, I don't even know how someone can become an expert because people are so, (laughs) it's so diverse every single time. So before before we dive into our subject, I'm interested. So what, what of the work that we do do sort of really drives you? What really gets you sort of stirred up and like what actually – so when you head to work tomorrow, you hop out of bed, you're excited. What is it about the work that actually you most enjoy? What I most enjoy is right now I'm working in higher education. And for me, it's just being able to, to help out the students yeah. because I'm a very recent graduate as well. Yeah. And you know, being able to hear some of the success stories really and helping people kind of achieve what they want to do. Yeah. Like my job is really to help like facilitate, kind of guide their visions in terms of like their donations and their philanthropy to help people. So for me growing up, I was like, I want to help people. But, you know, I was never good at the math and the sciences. I never really knew how to how to do that. Yeah. 
And then through life experience, through university, I started doing fundraising. And then I realized, oh, I'm just talking to people. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I love talking. I'm always very extroverted. And it kind of got me through the pandemic, actually, when I'm sitting at home. And I'm like, at least my job is to be able to just have conversations, just learn about people and just try and get them to help them get where they want to be. Because, you know, yeah, with fundraisers' job is about getting money, but it's also helping them realize, you know, their goals, help, helping them out and working with them. So I kind of like that a lot of my work is more like partnerships yeah. rather than a client base. Yeah. It basically seems like sales, but with some heart. Yeah. So I, <laughs> like sales with some kindness. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't ignore the fact that you just said conversation in the midst of the pandemic. So it is, is, the fact, <laughs> yeah. is the fact that the work can allow you to become – I've said this a couple of times on the podcast very recently that I think – and I may have even said this during that presentation in Ottawa – that I think fundraisers are some of the best conversationalists out there. You did say Yeah. Because, I, th- <laughs> I, 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 I mean, we doubled down on the number of, of broadcasts that we do here on the podcast in the midst of the pandemic. I mean, is yeah. that – and and some of my my research recently has really got me sort of looking at the fact that the marketplace, the job, the market, the workplace, mm-hmm. right, doesn't yeah. know how to make the conversation the work. They don't know how to sort of make conversation legitimate. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think so many workplaces are focused on just their results and metrics. They're not really focused on just having the conversation and leaving people with that good experience. Yeah. Because even if I don't get a donation the first time, even if I get a no on the first ask, if you can start building that relationship, eventually you might get something way bigger down the road, right? It's about just getting to know people, which is why I kind of like this kind of fundraising better, the kind that I'm doing now, because it's actually just me trying to build and foster these relationships. And, uh, you know, it's almost like making friends, but <laughs> with Can money you intuit, in the end. So. Have you learned how to intuit in those conversations that this is actually going somewhere? Like, do you not have to um, – because I think that's one of the things I've learned, and that's one of the reasons I always say to fundraisers, get in front of the donor and have those conversations. Even if you're in front of the donor in a virtual setting like this, like – you begin to sort of intuit, you develop a sense that, okay, I know this is going somewhere. Um, And I just read a a book, uh, a woman, um, uh, her name's uh, Patricia Shaw, and she's talking about the role of conversation in the workplace and how we don't legitimize it. Um, But I think in fundraising, the more conversation you're having with donors and like what I think I've consistently heard throughout the pandemic is that, People were talking to us. People were picking up the phone, and we mm-hmm. as fundraisers were actually enjoying the work. We weren't necessarily hopping on airplanes or driving across town to meet at the coffee shop, but we were having conversations of the sort that like you and I are having. I mean, is that really what it was? It's exactly what it was. I actually think it's almost more productive sometimes. Because, you know, you spend so much time traveling and organizing things, but sometimes people just want to sit down in the comfort of their own home and have a conversation. And a lot of the times, I started at Uottawa during the pandemic, so it's all been virtual. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which has been, it's been interesting. I mean, it was a bit tough at first, but I actually think it might have been a better way for me to start because it really made me focus more on the actual conversation, on asking them questions to really understanding who they are as a person. 
Because for me, I don't always even have exactly my ask ahead of time. I really wait to gauge to see what they're interested in first. Yeah. And then kind of in my head, I'm kind of thinking, you know, this might appeal to them more than what I was originally thinking. So it's really helped me think on my toes. And plus, we don't really have that body language that we used to have, right? Yeah. Like when you're sitting with someone, it's a lot easier to read them when I was doing a lot of more face-to-face stuff. But since it was virtual, it really made me focus on like smaller cues, like the tone of their voice and conversation and what I was saying that was resonating and what wasn't. So I think it's actually really helped me. And I think everything being virtual has actually made the conversations a lot more like, I don't want to say the word organic because I hate that word, but it kind of does because like people are lonely. They're sitting at home. They want to have that conversation. And when people hear I'm like a fundraiser, they always assume that all I care about is like making that money. But a lot of people, I think through the pandemic are just grateful that we're reaching out because and that's a big part of it too. My own, my goal isn't always money. Yeah. That might be the end goal, but a lot of the time it's just to get to know the person. So I think that's a, you know, the pandemic's obviously no one's thrived, no one's love it, yeah. but <laughs> I think it's been good in the sense that it's really, yeah, it's really fostered a lot more conversations, even amongst coworkers too, like having those morning meetings, taking time because, you know, we're all just sitting at home. Yes. So I think it's been a bigger priority for sure. And I think it's been nice in that sense. So Kate, we invite our guests to come on the podcast and have a big idea or bold opinion. Um, I don't necessarily know where you're going to go with this. (laughs) Uh, That's actually kind of the fun of it. And um, I think it's actually what keeps these conversations alive. And I think that's actually what's made it a pretty popular podcast as well. Uh, What do you got for us today? Well, I kind of wanted to, so something I've noticed with my work is that I am much younger than a lot of the people that that I'm working with. I'm still new into the career. I've done it for four or five years, but it's kind of been throughout school, like summers. So now I'm actually starting like my full professional career, but at a different kind of perspective as like a recent graduate. So I've also worked for political parties, like international charities. And the one thing that I've noticed is that I think we need to start changing some of our strategies that we have as fundraisers, because I think a lot of this, I know a lot of it comes from the U.S. as well. In Canada, we're a different country, right? We have a lot of different things sure. going on. Yeah. But I also think that we need to start putting energy into appealing to younger generations as well, because I think so many times, and I've seen this in higher education, is that they want to talk about, they want to talk about the boomer generation, the civics, the Gen X. They don't really want to focus on the younger, the younger people. I think a lot of that has to do with the pandemic (laughs) and they assume that we've all lost our jobs and we're not doing well financially, which it it is true to a sense, but I've also seen an outstanding number of young people donating to causes that they believe in throughout this. Yeah, Like even people who I know aren't the people that can donate millions of dollars. Right. Yeah, But I think we need to focus more on building loyal support. If if you're a charity, if you're hired, sorry, my dog is shaking. That's okay. That's okay. My dog, my dog's right over there. He, he's actually asleep, so <laughs> he's probably older than yours is. <laughs> oh yeah, he's still a puppy, but he's like a hundred pounds, so yeah. he's always in my face. Yeah. Um. But so my opinion, I would really say is that I just think that we really have to start reinventing the way that we're fundraising because I think it's going to change drastically in the next ten to fifteen years. Because I think right now, you know, there are some things that are kind of old school that yeah. we're doing. Yeah. And I just think that, especially with these bigger institutions, they need to stop modernizing a little bit. So I think one of the things that I have been 
it, it'd be interesting to sort yeah. of it'd be interesting to sort of blend your thinking with my thinking because one of the th- one of the things that I'm I, when I'm looking at the younger when I look at my kids for example I've got a 19 year old yeah. son he's the oldest of four okay. and when I look at my 19 year old son and when I look at history in the way that we sort of understand because people authors have have studied researchers have studied the way that sort of each generation sort of lives their life through, in the world yeah. if you will and there has been times. There are always generations that sort of live their lives more. And I, and I think this is kind of along the line with where you're going. I'm interested to hear your thoughts. So each generation sort of lives their life sort of uh, se- seemingly along a continuum between being a citizen and being a consumer. And I kind of yeah. wonder if the generation that we're sort of, you know, like the boomers, if you think about the boomers, the boomers are great yeah. consumers and and, yes. and they've been raised to be consumers and they live in the world <laughs> yes. like consumers. And, and they're sort of driving the, in many ways, they're driving sort of major giving right now. But I look yes. at my son differently. So he's sort of the, op, the uh, you know, my mother is a boomer, for example, and I'm in between the two as a Gen Xer. And then my kid here is this yeah. sort of the, I guess what we call a zennial, I guess. Um, <laughs> and I think he's going to be a better citizen. And I honestly wonder, Kate, if that's actually going to be a better donor. Like, are, are citizens better donors than consumers are donors? Does that make sense? What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think they're going to be much better. I think they'll be much more loyal. And I also think that, and not to say that all boomers are like this, but I've done so many different fundraisings (laughs) where people would straight up say no to whatever cause it is because they, I've donated enough to get my taxes back. Yeah, That's kind of, and I feel like with a lot of people that are making a lot of money in big donations, a lot of it is because of that. It's not always true. Yeah, sure. But I think that you know, I've noticed a lot of people that I know are really good citizens. Like they, they'll donate as much as they possibly can to causes that resonate with them that they care about. Whereas if you're a consumer, you might just donate to things. You might not put as much thought into it, I guess. So if you're able to reach these kinds of people at a young age and get them as loyal donors, I think they might actually be better in the long run. Um, Will you speak from that? Yeah. Kate, will you're here's the here's the question I think that we've got to wrestle with in the uh, so there's a there's an article that just came out. This is not rocket science. And um, (laughs) but the Chronicle just the Chronicle of Philanthropy just published an article that really drove the attention on to um, David Lively, who's an extraordinary fundraising leader um, in Mm -hmm. the in the U.S. here. He's talking about. I, I don't think he actually wrote the article, but it's some research that he's done. It basically drives the message home that, uh, about longevity. And I don't know that fundraising has really sort of figured out how to keep Kate, keep you in the seat, like keep you or me in the seat, right? Keep the fundraiser in the seat long enough. But I also don't know that we have figured out how to keep the donor in the seat, and what I what I tend to think is so if we if we sort of if we let the conversation sort of simmer around this notion of the of the citizen, if we let you be a citizen in the sector and be a quote unquote citizen of the organization that you represent, perhaps, and we let the donor be a citizen, and we're not always sort of just sort of clamoring with like consumer oriented sort of ways of thinking. I bet you'll stick around a little longer. I bet your donor will stick around a little bit longer. I bet you'll both have a more meaningful experience. And I bet the longevity that Lively is talking about in this article in the Chronicle ultimately will sort of pay for itself. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. I think that's 100% correct. And I like the way that this job has allowed me to foster these relationships because you need to treat them like people and you need to be humanized as well, right? Yeah. So all of these big corporations, I mean, if you're sending out email after, and we've all had this, these, yeah. you donate once and you get a million emails, that's not going to work for yeah. people anymore. Like it's I, at this point, I think it's useless. It's actually made me like unfollow things <laughs> that I care about because it's just such a nuisance and it's not... You're never, and if they actually took the time to give like meaningful updates about things, like let people know what their money's actually doing, I think it would really change things because I used to have donors come up to me and be like, I know I'm giving my money to this and I care about it, but no one's ever come back to me and told me what I'm actually doing. So I think that with the younger generation, like we want to know where our money's going and that it's actually doing something it's actually creating change not to say that older generations don't (laughs) but i've just i've there's i've seen a lot more social activism in the past few years i think the pandemic's really highlighted that as well and i think that people if they're going to give the money that they're going to give they want to know exactly what it's doing where it's going and if you can foster a relationship and be friendly you know have chats get to know them as a person i think that you'll have some really strong loyal donors that might be willing to yeah, stay around because as we both know, fundraising, there's a lot of turnover. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of people that I started fundraising with still fundraise. I think very, very few. I think people are surprised I still do it, to be honest. But uh, the reason I still do it is because I've been able to get different jobs and I've been able to see what I like and what I don't like. And because I am younger, I'm 24, I've kind of realized that the jobs that I've liked in fundraising are the jobs where I'm not just calling and asking for money. Yes. Like I don't want to just do that. I want to actually have these conversations and reach out to them after they've given the money and be like, hey, I have this student here that got your scholarship. They're really happy. They want to connect with you. And it's just a very different experience. It makes me feel like I'm actually doing something. And it makes me the donor feel like they're actually accomplishing something. So, so. D- d- does the or- – do the do the powers that be, whoever they are, whatever they age they yeah. happen to be, if you're, Kate, in the – donor seat. So if I'm the fundraiser, yes. uh, if I'm the fundraiser and you're the donor, um, and if we even take this conversation sort of back to where we started the notion of conversation, um, yeah. if do some of us just need to start to trust things like conversation and trust that Kate knows that, 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 Kate's not a dummy that she's not naive and she knows that there's an expect like one of the things I think that we've always a lot of my colleagues. So so I'll routinely get the question. I'll be at a conference. I'll be here on the podcast or something. Somebody will ask me the question, you know, how do we raise major gifts? And there is and, and, and I oftentimes say, you know, it's not scripted. It's not a direct thing. It's something that you sort of have to go about very, you know, with an understanding. A lot of times it's very serendipitous and you have to sort of take an indirect route. But oftentimes what that really comes down to is like what we're talking about, the willingness to just say, okay, we're going to have routine periodic conversations that don't necessitate me putting any stupid gimmicks in your inbox and really don't require me to put anything in your mailbox either. But it really just requires me to perhaps have a quarterly commitment to reaching out to Kate and having a conversation really no different than what you and I are doing here today. Um, it's just hiring people like you and perhaps hiring people like me and putting us on the other side of relationships with people that care about what your school's doing, for example, um, and teaching us just how to have conversation and sort of 
anticipating and trusting that the process will take care of itself. Is that part of it that we don't trust that the process will sort of take care of itself? Like we don't like, does your boss know he, does your boss know that they're paying you, Kate, to basically have conversations that you really don't know what the predictable outcomes is? Do they trust the conversation? Yeah, and this is the first time that they do, which has made a very ah. big difference for me in terms of my career. Because they've actually revamped everything that they've done around fundraising because I don't think it was working. So now they have dedicated fundraisers for specific faculties that have specific people. And we, yeah, we're supposed to be doing stewardship and reaching out to them, even if it's not necessarily for a donation, because they're starting to understand that it's more effective in terms of you know, retention as well, getting them to donate more than just once, right? So if you start building this relationship, you know, I think that my my boss has started to realize, because they've been in fund, these are the experts, like they've been in fundraising a long time. And that's something that they've taught me is really to like, you know, have an ask at the back of your pocket, but really let the donor guide the conversation. Don't go in there and try and have a pitch, try and know, you know, it's, it's really supposed to be based on like the individual, which is kind of, it can be challenging when you're not really sure a hundred percent where they want to go. But I think the best thing that you can do as a fundraiser is just to listen. Yeah. And I think that's, we're talking about conversation right now. And I think especially after the past year and with us going back onto to campus soon into the fall, I think people just want to be heard right now. And I think that they also really just want to get relevant updates and they want to trust me. And yeah. I think that that's something that having real conversation, because I don't trust the people that send me a bunch of emails that never reach out to me. Like if you can actually get to know details of a person about these donors, about their family, about their friends, about their interests, it'll actually make it such a more meaningful relationship and they'll trust you more, which I think ultimately will make it easier to get a major gift, right? Like you can call anybody up and be like, hey, we need $500 for this fund to help with this, this, and this. But if you want a big, meaningful gift, I really feel like there does need to be an element of trust there. And that takes time to foster that. So, um, do, so do, some our, okay. do some of our bosses, <laughs> Kate, you got me more. Okay. So I, I heard two buzzwords in there. So yeah. retention, retention and stewardship, for example, I think, yeah. I think your boss and you know that at the core <laughs> of retention and uh, stewardship is essentially a conversation, but we have yeah. so delegitimized the conversation that we have to come up with some other gimmick to call it. Right. But I actually, I think if I'm reading in between the lines of what you're basically saying to me, Kate, is that if your boss would just say to you, have conversations with people that actually give a damn about the school and are inclined to yeah. give, right? And didn't feel inclined to call it something else, like let's call it stewardship or let's call it renewal yeah. or let's call it retention. It's all yeah. conversation at the core. It I is. bet you're done. Right. <laughs> It is. What else? What else? What what other? What other? What else are you going to do? And and but the other thing you're also telling me, I think the other thing you're telling me, and perhaps you're telling all the bosses out there, is that you'll probably enjoy the work more when we stop coming up with these gimmicky buzzwords to call it something when it's just having conversations. And you're also telling me with your donor cap on that that that's what the donor essentially wants. Yeah, they want to feel like a person. <laughs> they don't want to feel like they're just a wallet. And yeah, there's these all kinds of buzzwords, and I've had to learn them all. But oh, for we've me, learned them all. I start. 
Yeah, you know, I know all of that stuff. I had bosses try and cut my pay if my retention wasn't this amount or whatever. And, you know, the best kind of environment you can have for fundraising is just to trust the fundraiser to just have conversations. And, like, it's supposed to be an enjoyable thing. And I think so many people get caught up with the the words and the metrics and the numbers, and we've all fallen to that at some yeah, point because yeah, you have yeah. to be able to get money. But I've just completely shifted my thinking and just like trying to have a good time with whoever I'm talking to. And if I can make them laugh, if we can have some kind of common ground, I almost always end up getting a donation anyways, because then you're actually like connecting with that person. But if you're just going to go in and try and overcomplicate it and treat them just like a donor, you just want to treat them like they're another human being. And I think it's almost become overcomplicated with fundraising that way. Okay. The University of Ottawa, that's where you work, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The University of Ottawa is always there, right? Between you yes. and whoever the donor is that you're talking to. So yeah. let, let's let's pick on uh, retention, uh, what, retention and stewardship. That's the two words you said. If we just said, okay, let's do away with retention and stewardship, and we're going to pay Kate to engage with people that we know are inclined to give, right? The, the other thing yeah. is, is that if we allow you to have meaningful conversations with the donor, whoever the donor, the Kate on the other side of the phone, right? Um, yeah. If we let you have conversations with the other person on the other side of the phone, the more real, genuine, authentic those conversations are, isn't the more likely you are and they are to pick up the phone too? Exactly. Like yeah. if, if I just create a manufactured experience that feels like cheap shit, you're not going to want to <laughs> pick up the phone, right? No. And they're not yeah, going to want to see... pick it up either. Exactly. And I think especially with this new generation, these iPad babies, right? They're yeah. so used to social media and getting these emails and seeing these ads. That's not going to work anymore. Like you really need to have that connection with people now. Yes. And I mean, sure, some ads, it might work for some people, but for me... I feel like most of the time I just would rather someone called me. Maybe that's old fashioned. I know most people like to just text now, but I think really having that conversation and actually like enjoying the process of donating, it's so it's so different than just doing it like going online by yourself or clicking a link in an email or you know, it just feels like they're reaching out to everybody. But if they reach out to you specifically and they take an interest in you, then yeah, I mean people are definitely gonna pick up the phone more. Especially I think and I think this it's the case with younger donors too. Like they really want to be like they want to be taken just as seriously as people who might be able to give like a hundred thousand dollars because a lot of my fundraising has been, you know, even if people can give five hundred dollars to something, like if we're able to get twenty people to do that, it's gonna be a big result, right? So yeah. it's just it doesn't always have to be just focused on the people that can give millions of dollars. Like we need to focus on for fostering these relationships with people a little bit younger because they might end up really, really wealthy and successful at some point. And if you have that relationship and you're not just basing it only on like the amount that they can give to you in a fiscal year, <laughs> I think it really changes things. And I think that it might actually provide better opportunities for donations down the road too. So I think that we just need to treat everybody the exact same way. Try not to prioritize it just based on the amount of money they make too. Well, I, which I, is I, probably easier said than done. But <laughs> I, I think you. I think that, so. One of the one of the 
benefits that these conversations create because they're not scripted and we don't know where these things are going to go. But if you connect the notion of, cause I don't think this is about older donor. I don't think this conversation, we, we might've thought this conversation was going to emerge as one about <laughs> older versus younger donors or big checks yeah. and little checks. But I think, I think if you listen to what you said at the beginning of the conversation, first of all, we started about conversation, but you, you, you yeah. went straight to humanization. And I think, I think what a lot yeah. of us are asking for in sort of this post 9-11, post recession and post now pandemic yeah. and, and, and being in the 21st century where we don't want to basically sort of live in the industrial revolution, for example, with assembly lines yeah. and feel like we're consumers. I think what you're basically saying, Kate, is that if you'll connect the dots between what it feels like to be human and what it feels like to have conversation, the two go hand in hand. And that's probably what the essence of really good fundraising is, regardless of who the donor happens to be. I think the millennial donor or the zennial, you know, as soon as my son starts giving to York College, for example, where he's going to school, yeah. him having a conversation with you as a development officer is no different than my mother, for example, as a baby boomer getting a phone call from the school where she went. It's the same right. damn stuff. And, and and we don't have to call it anything. And and that's coming that's some of the qualms I have with even calling it major donors and different categories and all that sort of yeah. stuff. If you just sort of scrap all that stuff, just have a conversation with my mother in much the same way that you'd have a conversation with my son Gordon. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think humanization is I think it's probably the most important aspect of fundraising, honestly, because it's a transfer of emotions, right? Like if you're happy, they're going to be happy if they're trying to talk to you about something. All you have to do is listen and respond to them because, I mean, we have conversations every single day. It doesn't have to be treated differently. I think we're just trying to overcomplicate fundraising to this extent, like with things like, yeah, stewardship, retention, because exactly like if we're talking to your mother or your son, like it's the same kind of conversation, right? Yeah. It's getting to know them and what would be the most meaningful to them. So that's how I really want to start like doing my fundraising. And I think it's made a big difference when you get all the numbers out of your head, when you stop complicating it, it's just about talking to another human being. And if you really don't want them to see you as a fundraiser either, because I do think that there's a bit of a misconception with fundraising. I think they all just think that we call people and ask for, <laughs> for money all the time. But yes. for me, it's really just about like, actually getting to know people. And if they're able to make a donation, great. If not, I don't even necessarily see it as a waste of time because if they have a good experience with you down the road, they might come back and be like, I really do want to give now. So, you know, I think there's potential in everybody as long as you actually treat them like a human being and you try and get to know them. See, I can't, this, this is why I, I, I give, <laughs> I, I, I give, I give the donor, so you, you know, this language, another one of the buzzwords out there, donor centered fundraising. Yeah. I, I push against that because in the healthcare world, so the healthcare mm -hmm. world has gone, I just recently read a book about this. So the healthcare community has gone through this sort of this evolution of going through what they used to call um, physician centered care, which is sort of the expert focus, a focus on the expert to right. at, towards the end of the 20th century. So the last couple of decades of the 20th century, um, sort of when the baby boomers were taking their their toddlers and their kids to the doctor, for example, it became what they called patient-centered care. And patient-centered care in many ways sort of aligns with what we would consider to be donor-centered care. 
And as they creeped closer and closer to the dawn of the internet and the turn of the 20, you know, moved into the 21st century, Kate, one of the things that they started to doing in healthcare is they basically started terming it the, the sort of the new term. And one of the things that you would hear in healthcare now is what they call relationship centered care, which is the idea that you're putting the interaction. You're not putting the focus on any one sort of part or any one individual. So it's not about Kate. What, regardless of what yeah. seat you're in, and it's not about Jason, regardless of, you know, it's not, it's not focused on the host and it's not focused on the guest and it's not focused on the donor or the fundraiser, but it's focused on how do we get the interaction right. And I think we've so, tr- we've, we tried so damn hard in the fundraising space to get the relate, to get the, uh, to get what the donor's experience is right. And then perhaps now we're sort of at a crisis point where we're trying to get the fundraiser's experience right. And I think if we listen to something like everything you've said for the last 35 minutes, we're basically talking about getting the relationship right. We're basically saying scrap all this buzzwords and scrap all this emphasis on individual parts and perhaps focus on the interaction that happens between Kate and her donor. Because if we do focus on that, I'm guessing you're both going to have a much more remarkable experience. Am I right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's going to be a much nicer experience. It's going to be more authentic. And I do think, you know, we're talking about having citizens as donors, people that you want with that longevity, right? And I think that's the way to do it. I think it's probably the only way to do it. Yeah. Uh, Unless you're going to get a bunch of people that might just be giving the same amount every month over and over again as like a habit. Yeah. Or if you want to get people that might want to give more, might want to fund a new project or might just want to hear your ideas. I think building that relationship is like by far the most important thing you can do in fundraising. And it also makes it a lot nicer for us too, as fundraisers to actually have that one-on-one relationship it's a lot harder to just only fundraise all day every day right like we should take time out of our days to just connect with people and you know hear their thoughts experiences and ideas and then maybe from that yeah other opportunities will arise but for me I don't think there would be any chance that I would continue fundraising if I was in a kind of environment where the relationship wasn't prioritized if it was all about numbers and this and that and you have to hit this certain amount I've had jobs like that because I've done all this different kind of fundraising and not to say that it's perfect but being able to actually just focus on you know I'm not just saying it's donor centric like some of it is sure. but for me the way that I'm interpreting it Because I think a lot of fundraising still is in that realm for sure, where they're basing it on like this specific individual. But I think if we can kind of shape it more to just building these relationships, whatever that may be, whether or not it's a donation right away or a few months from now or a year from now, I think sometimes as long as you build that relationship, like, and you know, it's going to go somewhere, at least like they have an interest. I think that that's the best thing a fundraiser can do because it'll probably amount in better gifts anyways, if they trust you, if they like you, if they if they get those updates rather than just getting, you know, those generic phone calls or <laughs> emails or something, right? Like, Oh yeah. Those- I, I, I think, I think quote unquote donor centered fundraising is much more measurable. Anything where you focus yeah. on the individual, whether it's the fundraiser, if you think about the way it's sort of our crisis right now that we're sort of experiencing in the fundraising space and you're relatively new to this, but, but the, 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 um, 
we've, we've sort of got this ongoing crisis of trying to retain the fundraiser and trying to retain the donor. It's the same damn thing on each side yeah. of the transaction. It's, 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 it's the same problem. And, and if you think about it, what we need to stop doing is, is fo- stop focusing solely on the donor and stop focusing solely on the fundraiser in my mind and start focusing on the fact that if we just create meaningful opportunities for the two of them to engage, because what I keep hearing, and you've said it yourself here on the podcast, and I heard it throughout the pandemic, is that when the donor actually picks up the phone, I mean, it's it, it, it makes you nervous enough as it is as a fundraiser to pick up the phone and try to talk to somebody who in many ways is a complete stranger. But if the, mm-hmm. if the fundraiser, I mean, if the donor is actually inclined to actually pick up the phone, am I right that – all of a sudden, your job just went from a sort of a, a, a B or C level experience to an A level experience. If you can actually sit on the phone with a donor for 45 minutes and have a conversation like we're having here. Right. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so different. <laughs> it's, a, it's a completely different experience. And I kind of realized this early on into fundraising when I was going door to door. If you just went to the door and you just did your pitch, most people would like roll their eyes or just stare at you or like, you know, try and get you to go away. Yeah. But a lot of times when I got better at it, what I started doing was just talking to them. Yes. Being like, hey, I know that I've interrupted your day right now. Like, let me acknowledge the fact that I'm here and that you're here. Yeah. And I want to get to know you a little bit. And it got to the point where like, it got kind of like people started inviting me into their houses. Like they started <laughs> wanting to, it, it, it was a bit odd, but that's kind of gave me some some idea of what I needed to take away from fundraising. And that's why it's made me successful in it, in that it's 100% about the relationship. It's not about how much money they can give or how many times you have to call them or picking up and doing cold calls because that is the worst. It's the worst part about being a fundraiser is calling strangers and trying to, it's, it's nerve wracking, but if they know who you are, if you've built that relationship, like, Oh, it's so, it's so much nicer. And I'm really excited for the world to, to start going back to normal so I can meet people face to face again too. Um, Because I think those are really meaningful interactions, just like taking somebody for coffee or just taking time out of your day to to talk and and get to know them. So, yeah, I learned that early on in fundraising that if I'm just going to try and get them to to give me money, it's not going to be fun for me. It's not going to be fun for them. So we just really have to. Are we as obligated? So there's a lot of. So, Kate, you're young in your career. And you're probably yeah. you're certainly not at the uh, peak of we're gonna we're just gonna completely acknowledge that you're not at the <laughs> peak of your earning years, right? No. At twenty five, twenty four, twenty five years old, you're not making what you're gonna perhaps make in twenty years when you're you know at the peak of your fundraising career, for example. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, is it fair to say that a person like yourself is balancing? balancing, not necessarily putting one of precedence over the other, but is, is a lot of this just as important for you as compensation is like, if I was paying you twice as much money now, but caught, but forcing you to sort of work inside of a machine, right. (laughs) Where you felt, where you felt like a robot and you felt like you were basically treating your donors like ATM machines, um, is part of what we need to really wrestle with is that the design of the job is as important as the compensation is? I think compensation is important because sure. I think it's a hard job to do, to have conversations yes. all day, every day. But at the same time, like I have worked, I have not made, 
like the jobs I worked in in fundraising before were like nonprofits, like political parties where I was not getting compensated properly at all okay. because they just didn't have the revenue to do that. Yeah. So I kind of felt like I was a cog in a machine and they weren't able to pay me properly. Yeah. But I do think that I think compensation is important. I think it's kind of a balance of both. Like I think yeah. you need to compensate people properly, but I also think that you need to make sure that their experience is good. So although I might not be making the hundreds of thousands of dollars that some funders may make in the peak of their careers, which, you know, it would be really cool if that happens. But if it doesn't, (laughs) for me, it's like I still want to work at a place that I'm proud of, especially if I'm fundraising for that place. Because if they can tell that I'm working at this place, even if I'm getting paid a lot of money, but I don't really feel like. I like what they're doing or I don't like their approaches or I don't feel like I'm being treated properly. I'm not going to be able to fundraise as well because I feel like there needs to be a level of passion coming from the fundraiser that will come across to the person that you're talking to. So yeah, I do think that fundraisers should be compensated properly for sure. And I know that I will probably get there at some point, Yeah, you. but I think the, it's just, I feel like the experience is almost more important to an extent because if you're getting paid a lot of money, but, all they're focusing on is those buzzwords and metrics. It's not going to make you want to stay in that field. Right. Okay. And, and that's what, okay. So again, this is, this is what I'm getting at when I talk about how we've got the, if we don't focus on the interaction and sort of designing this, this is in some part, my critique on the notion that fundraising is an art or a science, because I don't think either really helps us. I think if we said, okay, let's, let's abandon both of those modes of inquiry and start thinking about fundraising as something that can be designed. And if we design it as meaningful for both you, the fundraiser and for the fundraiser, the, the donor on the other side, and we recognize that, yeah, compensating you really well for a year or two only to have you leave because the job completely sucks or, yeah. or likewise create, you know, having this experience, you know, with a donor and perhaps because we've just made them feel like these extraordinary consumers and they give to you in extraordinary ways for a year or two, but because the experience eventually sort of turns sour and it, it eventually sucks, you lose them too. And it doesn't matter how much that gift necessarily was because you can't renew it. And so yeah. I think if we if we recognize sort of the complexity of what it means to get Kate and Kate, we got Kate on each side of this relationship now. If we focus on the sort of the messy complexity of getting the Kate and Kate relationship right, um, then I really don't know that it has anything to do with whether they're boomers or millennials. I think it has everything to do, Kate, with getting the relationship going. Um, yeah. And I think it, I think it ultimately takes it right back to where we started. You know, you said conversations. I've heard that over and over again. Um, when when you become a boss, here's the, here's one of the things I'm betting on. (laughs) When you become a boss in 10, you know, five years, you, you might be a boss in five years. You might be a boss sooner than that. But let's say in five years, you're a boss. Are you going to be completely okay with having an army of individuals like yourself who you basically pay? To quote to basically have conversations like that's what that's what excites the hell out of me is that is mm-hmm. that the young person like you is saying I'm figuring this out at 24 years old and by 30 I'm going to be a boss and I'm going to have five people working for me and I'm going to pay them to go out there and have conversations with people like my son and people like my mom is that what's going to happen to fundraising. I think so. I think so, too. I think so. I think so, yeah. And although it sounds like an outrageous concept to pay someone just to speak, I mean, lots of jobs are like that, right? 
And I think it's just all about, I think it's good that I am starting off a bit younger and I've seen different kinds of fundraising. I've seen what works and what doesn't. And I've been, I've had great bosses and I've had terrible bosses. And what I've seen from all of this is that the good bosses are the ones that put some trust in you, that allow you to just be yourself, that allow you to just go out there and have conversations that if you might not get the major donation this time, it's not the end of the world because they know that you're doing your job. And I mean, at the end of the day, like I think almost, I think I heard this back at uh, the virtual conference too, like everybody within your institution or charity is a fundraiser, even if they're not raising money. Sure. Like it's all about the experience that you're giving people, right? So for me, I would be perfectly fine paying people to just go out and have conversations as long as they're good people that are representing, you know, my, my whatever, if I'm, I don't know what boss I'm at in this, (laughs) if I'm at Uwater or whatever, I'm just happy that they're going out and, being an ambassador for the university at that point and getting people those experiences that make them want to stay around for the long run. Cause that to me is the, is the most important thing is just having that loyalty too. So yeah, if I'm a boss, I'm totally fine with paying people to have conversations as long as they're meaningful. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, as I just, there's such a turnover rate too in fundraising. Like I've seen it. And I think the only way to keep people around is just to give them a little bit of freedom and a little bit of trust to just be out there, go out there and be themselves and, you know, treat these donors like humans. <laughs> so if we do all that, if we, the yeah. final question, last question, if we mm-hmm. collectively do all that, because yeah. this, this is the big, this is the big if that the fundraising profession seems to be dealing with is how do we, yeah. How do we get – look, we got we got Kate to join AFP. She shows up for the conference. She's having conversations on the on the fundraising panel. You know, you're doing all of the right things that we'd expect you to be doing five years in. If we, if we humanize it and we make it more conversational work, is that what's going to basically keep you in the job? If we humanize it and we make it more conversational, is that basically sort of summing it up? Absolutely. Yeah. And there was a time when I really didn't think I was going to keep doing it. And that was the time when I wasn't being treated like a human. It was the time when I was calling and just asking for money over and over and over again. And even if I heard, and I would have bosses call me and they would listen into my conversations too sometimes, which (laughs) in and of itself was, it was awful. It was awful. And I don't Don't, know how to tell them this. Look, if you got to listen to my, I I heard that a couple of times. It was so ridiculous. (laughs) It was so ridiculous. And they would call me right after and be like, why didn't you ask that person for money? I'd be like, they were crying because they lost their job in the pandemic oh. and you wanted me to ask them for money. It was crazy. And it was just like, I was so close to quitting and then I got this job and there was nothing like that one because the people I'm talking to are generally a little bit wet, better off. But also, sure. if I don't feel comfortable asking somebody because of their life situation, they understand that because you don't want to like scare people off, right? Like if they're going through a hard time financially, you don't want to still push them. So I just, yeah, I mean, I, when I wanted to stop doing fundraising was when I had these bosses that were just like, you should have said this, or you should have changed this, or you should have still, it was like, that's not how you treat like a conversation. You're not supposed to like pick it apart. Like, obviously, you know, there's some times where you could say or do something better, but at the same time, like the person on the other end doesn't know if you've messed up. And that's something that I've learned is, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be perfect. Like, yeah, before I had to read all these pitches and I had to get certain parts, but like the donor has no idea. They don't know exactly what you're going after. So if you need to change your mind, if you mess up, like they're not going to know. So don't beat yourself up over it. So that was the main thing that kept me in fundraising was that I'm not perfect. I'm allowed to be like, you know what? I'm new to this and I'm allowed to just 
assume that the donor is just happy to have the conversation. I'm sorry. I got I to gotta hold you on that one for a minute. I don't <laughs> yeah, think yeah. – that's that's perhaps one of the most insightful things I've heard in a long time, Kate. Okay. Final <laughs> question, folks. Hold on. Uh, hold on. Listeners, please stick with us for a minute. Okay. So you're totally right. The donor doesn't know – the donor on the other end of the phone call or even in an in-person meeting sitting across a coffee table, for example, doesn't know that you, quote unquote, messed up. And so because they oftentimes don't know that and you're completely right, in some cases, in some rare, rare, rare cases, they might figure yeah. out that you said something stupid or went the wrong direction or went too far. But nine times out of ten, the only person in in the job – in this whole process, the only person who can tell you that you messed up is your boss. Exactly. Yeah. And, we uh, got to think about th- that. Yeah. And is the boss and is yourself, right? Because I think a lot of fundraisers are very hard on themselves yes. too. Yes. Because their bosses focus too much on money and metrics and all those other things. So that's all they're thinking about. So for me, I really had to get rid of that thought process because that's what was pushing me out of fundraising to begin with. What m- brought me back in was – actually being able to to have these meaningful relationships because before I felt like a robot and they were treating me like a robot and yeah, it wasn't great. So well, but that's you, one of the, if you yeah. study complexity, so I, this, this new book project that my, a lot of my listeners are hearing me talk about. So if you study complexity, which is the science of living systems, right? A living system is what's yes. happening between your boss and yourself and that donor, for example, complex systems really don't learn when they're not sort of making quote unquote mistakes, but it's a completely different sort of view or perspective on what making a mistake is. So when you're looking at an assembly line, like a machine and it makes a mistake, you're looking at it like it's flawed and broken. But when you're looking at making a mistake, for example, you and I are having a conversation here, which is a very small complex adaptive system and say one of us says something stupid it's not because one of us it's not because we're flawed and screwed up it's actually because that's probably going to help mature the relationship and make for something much more robust and meaningful later down the road and so yeah. it's a complete uh, there's an author um there's an author that I read some time ago and she uh she describes two perspectives of what it means to be wrong and and when you're looking at being wrong or having quote unquote made a mistake through the lens of early 20th century sort of assembly lines, that's one thing, but you're exactly right. Every fundraiser that I know that I would ever place in a job knows when they're quote unquote wrong. And they generally don't need the boss to tell them that. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They don't, they don't. Exactly. And I think that's why, you know, I, don't even have necessarily like one boss that I always report to in this job. So it's nice. It's kind of more like they've made it more like a team kind of environment because at the end of the day, like we're all competent people. We all know how to have a conversation. So I think that your boss is going to kind of make or break whether or not you're going to be in fundraising, quite honestly, because they're going to be the ones that are either picking up what you're doing or supporting what you're doing. And for me, yeah, the boss, the bosses make all the difference. But also, if you're just able to be treated like part of a team rather than, you know, you fundraise and you have to hit this goal and I'm going to keep pressuring you if you don't. I don't know. I just feel like I understand why it's that way. They're getting pressure. Yeah. At the same time, that pressure doesn't always – it just makes people crumble out of out of fundraising. That's why, you know – Yeah, I've had to – uh 
I've had to with my clients. So my clients, some of my clients have never done any meaningful fundraising in any meaningful way. And, and a lot of times what I find myself doing is, is I'm just coaching them into conversation. So I'm just coaching yes. them into knowing how to sit across the lunch table with a major donor, perhaps, and, and having a meaningful conversation with this person and allowing a, a charitable contribution to sort of be incorporated into that process. And along the lines of sort of where we're wrapping up here is they don't know these individuals oftentimes don't know how to have conversations go in weird places and how to ha- how to say stupid things and how to sort of quote unquote be wrong in a rightful sort of way because they're trying to sort of perfect it like you know mid mid 20th century marketing would sort of do it like in a perfect you know a perfect brochure or something you can't be a perfect brochure when you're sitting there having a conversation with this woman on the phone like you were describing a few minutes ago um you you can't you, you it just doesn't work that way. You're talking about human. Yeah, there's two humans on each side of that phone. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like you're in a really good Kate. Kate, it sounds like you're in a really good place. Um, it sounds like you're really excited about fundraising. Um, and I've got to wrap up because my listeners don't hold on. Our listeners don't hold on that much longer. <laughs> um, but if somebody's interested in reaching out to you, perhaps they want to continue the conversation. They've per- perhaps been intrigued by some of your comments, as I have. Um, how would you suggest that they do that? Yeah, well, uh, add me on LinkedIn. My my name is uh, Kate Demaret. It's French, but uh, please add me there. I'd love to to talk to you guys if any of you have any questions. And you can email me as well um, at kate.demaret4 gmail.com. Just uh, if you have any questions or you want to talk, I really want to get to know more fundraisers as well or give advice or get advice too, because <laughs> I'm still learning. So yeah, please reach out to me for sure. That'd be great. Kate, it's been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much. It's been great. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.